And uh, we're in Genesis chapter 40. And this is God's word to you because he loves you. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker uh, of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, and he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer uh, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and uh, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph uh, said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief uh, baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, uh, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Uh, there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the, up, uh, in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that every week you call us together as your children. That you give us a time uh, to uh, be still from our busy lives and to let you address us. To speak your love to us, to speak of your grace, to remind us uh, who our God is. So I pray uh, for your spirit now to attend to us. Um, to take these words and apply them to the hearts of those who sit here. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So um, we are uh, continuing our study through these last 14 chapters of uh, Genesis. And these last 14 chapters of Genesis are really the story of uh, two brothers, Joseph and Judah. And part of the reason that these two brothers are a kind of important part of Genesis is one of the things to remember, I've mentioned this before, is that Genesis was written um, to the Exodus community. So when Israel, uh, they were slaves in Egypt, right? So we think, oh, Israel's slaves in Egypt, and Joseph's a slave, slave in Egypt. And that community that was, that, they, that was slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them out of Pharaoh's hand, you know, they went through the Red Sea, and now they're wandering in the desert. And while they're wandering in the desert, God gives them the book of Genesis through Moses. Moses writes Genesis and says, let me tell you your history and who your God is. And uh, one of the reasons that was important is because that Exodus community, the two most prominent tribes, it was the 12 tribes of Israel, who came from the 12 sons of Jacob, the two most prominent tribes were Ephraim, uh, which is Joseph's son, and Judah. So really the tribes from Joseph and Judah were the most prominent. And so here is uh, Moses telling the story of your, you know, your father, that who these tribes came from, these two leader tribes, where they came from. And what we've seen has happened so far is um, back in chapter 37, uh, Joseph, who was uh, the little brother, uh, went off where all his brothers were, about 65 miles from home. He walked off to go see what they were doing when they were tending to their flocks and things. And uh, his brothers, uh, because he was kind of a snotty little brat, they said, and you know, he's the favored son, they said, all right, uh, why don't, uh, Judah actually, it was Judah's idea, he says, why don't we sell him as a slave and tell his dad that he's dead? And so Joseph gets sold by his brothers, and specifically by Judah, uh, to be a slave in Egypt. And then the next chapter we see that uh, Judah actually goes under the, you know, uh, has this kind of conversion where he, he realizes how lost he is and he, his, his daughter-in-law dress up like a prostitute and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant and he realizes, oh, she's more righteous than I am. And he, he begins to trust in God and he has this conversion. And then uh, Joseph, though, has been taken to Egypt and he's in Potiphar's house, who's the captain of the guard, and he's wrongly accused of trying to, to sleep with Potiphar's wife and so he's thrown in prison. And uh, what is eventually going to happen, where this whole story is going, is leading towards this climactic moment where Judah and Joseph are going to meet again. Judah, who sold Joseph into slavery, and Joseph, who's now be, who will eventually become the, the king of Egypt. And they're going to have this encounter, and it's the most important encounter, where um, uh, Judah is going to repent and say, what I did was wrong. I was lost. I was a sinner. I shouldn't have done that. And Joseph is going to forgive him. And what God is saying is that this moment of confession, of repentance, and of forgiveness and reconciliation, this is the heart of what it means to be the people of God. This is the heart of God's kingdom. And so what he's doing is telling the story of how, how are Joseph and Judah going to be transformed so that they're ready for that, that moment, for that encounter, that decisive moment of forgiveness and reconciliation. How, what is God going to do in their life? And... Um, and specifically, as we're looking right now at this, is the story of Joseph, the question is, what does God need to do to, to transform Joseph? How is God going to transform Joseph so that he's ready to forgive his brothers? And what we're going to see is that Joseph needs to experience God's steadfast love for him. His steadfast, unfailing love, he needs to experience that. And he's going to see that because he's going to find out that God remembers him remembers his promises to him. And one of the things I want to say about, uh, you know, 
when I say that, that he needs to experience God's steadfast love, as Christians, we generally understand that to mean I'm going to have kind of an emotional encounter, maybe at church or something. There's a really good song that really hits me, and I say, I experience God's love. And that's certainly God, the Holy Spirit gives us times of that, and those are, those are precious times with the Lord. But I think more importantly is when we are in crisis, the way that God shows his steadfast love to us is that when we are in crisis and we cry out to him, it turns out that he hears our cries and he's with us. And uh, actually, this is, this is how I became a Christian. Uh, when I became a Christian when I was 16, my life was a wreck. I had dropped out of school. I left home. I was alienated from my parents. And, um, and I just couldn't change my life. And I, I, I'd never been to church. I knew nothing. And I cried out to God and I said, God, I cannot change my life. And I'm just going to act as if you're, I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to just act as if you're going to do something in my life. And what he showed me was that he did. He took my prayer seriously. His love was real. He really remembered someone like me. He didn't just forget about me and cast me off. He remembered me. And that's what we see happening in this passage with Joseph, is that he is being remembered by God even though he's in prison, even though he's been what seems to be forsaken by God. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three ways, three ways that God remembers us in his steadfast love. Three, things, three times kind of that he does that that are, that are just key to our transformation. The first is that God remembers us even when we suffer. God remembers us even when we suffer. Second, God remembers us even when we are faithless. God remembers us even when we're faithless. And third, God remembers us even when he forgets himself. God remembers us, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So these three things, and uh, when we find that God really remembers us, he's attentive to us, his eyes are on us, he's thinking about us, then we experience his steadfast, unchanging love. Okay? So first, God remembers us even uh, when we suffer. Now, at this point in the story, uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers 10 years ago. So he's been in slavery plus being in prison. We don't know the ratio, but together his time in slavery and his time in prison has been 10 years. He's been 10 years. I mean, you imagine how long that is. You've been sold by your brothers. You're in a foreign country. You don't know anyone. You have no idea why God is doing this. You have, what is the purpose? And it's been for 10 years. And, um, and what's important to uh, realize is that as we read Genesis, you know, I just kind of told you the story of Genesis. Well, this is what's going to happen. He's going to become the king, and there he's going to reconcile with his brothers. We kind of, you know, and if you're a Christian, you might know that story. And we, so we read this, and we're like, Joseph, don't worry. It's all going to work out in the end. We can see the whole picture. But we forget. He's, he's in prison. He has no clue about any plan of God that he's going to be the king of Egypt. He doesn't know anything. I mean, he had an inkling when he was a, a kid that God was going to make him some kind of ruler, but it was very vague. And uh, so he, he's just, he doesn't know what is happening. And so he may be trying to understand why, is, why are all these bad things happening to me? Why am I suffering so bad? Why, am I, why is my life so miserable? And, um, you know, I've been uh, 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 reading a really good book recently uh, on depression by a guy named uh, Ed Welsh, um, who's a Christian counselor guy, and a, b- a book called uh, a Depression, depression a-, a Stubborn Darkness. And um, in one of the early chapters, uh, Welsh uh, explores some of the causes of depression. Why do we get depressed? And uh, he, uh, you know, and he says, you know, the Bible doesn't 
say a lot about depression. There are some passages and some people that are clearly depressed in the Bible. But if you ask what does the Bible have to say about suffering, if you think of depression as a form of suffering, um, he says that pretty much every page of the Bible addresses it and speaks to it. And uh, when it comes to the question of what causes our, our suffering, and our, you know, in his case he's talking about depression, he says that the Bible is so nuanced. It doesn't give simplistic answers of why we're depressed. It doesn't just say, oh, well, this is because you're making bad choices. That's why you're depressed. It doesn't say that. It actually, it gives at least five reasons why we suffer. You know, other people hurt us. I mean, the Psalms are filled with people crying out to God and saying, I'm being oppressed by people. People are taking advantage of me. And, uh, and so it's because of other people's sin that we get depressed. It's because of our own choices, because we make foolish decisions. Um, it's because we live in a cursed world that uh, the fall has uh, affected. And so, you know, families, our bodies, all, all kinds of things have been affected by the fall. There's also an evil one. The Bible says that there's a dark uh, Lord who is, uh, is the prince of this world who is uh, lying to us so, uh, and is scheming against us. And so that's why we suffer, because of, of Satan. But also, we suffer, the Bible says, because God brings suffering into our lives. He wants, uh, you know, uh, Isaiah 45 says, I, the Lord, form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. God brings prosperity and he creates disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So there is this um, complex mixture of why am I suffering. It's, we'll probably never figure it out because it's some intricate web of all these causes that are causing us, that are putting us uh, into our suffering. And I, and I put a really good quote um, uh, on page three of your bulletin. This is from, uh, from Ed Welsh. And... Um, because for Joseph, um, the most important purposes for his suffering, he was completely unaware of. He could not know. God had not told him. We know, but he didn't know. And this is what Welsh says. We might uncover some of the reasons for our suffering, but we might never find them all. We all want to know, why am I suffering? Why am I, why am I depressed? Why, am I, why does my life seem miserable? We may never know. There is a, a mystery in suffering, just as there is ultimate mystery at the end of all human investigations. Instead of teaching us how to identify the causes of suffering, Scripture directs us to the God who knows all things and is fully trustworthy. You might be able to discern some obvious causes of suffering, and knowing those causes might help alleviate the pain, but all suffering is intended to train us to fix our eyes on the true God. Therefore, depression, regardless of the causes, is a time to answer the deepest and most important of all questions, whom will I trust? Whom will I worship? And um, what Joseph needed to know and what we need to know is that uh, even if he uh, couldn't name all the reasons why he was suffering, um, that God could be trusted because God remembered him even in the midst of his suffering. God remembered him. God was attentive to him. God was watching him. There's a great, uh, Psalm 56 says this, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Every tear, every sorrow, God accounts for. 
He records. He remembers. He watches. So he's not forsaking. He's not far away from us. He's actually close and he's attentive to us. And so one of the questions we need to ask is, how can I know that if I'm in a miserable situation, that God does remember me? He hasn't forgotten about me. I think there's a few things in this passage, a few, a few things. First, um, God gives us relief at periods, right? He, in our suffering, he sprinkles our suffering with kind of uh, sprinkles our suffering with his kindness. He gives us little tastes of his kindness. You see this in verse 1. Look. Um, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and uh, the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard uh, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he uh, attended them. Now, um, one of the things we saw at the end of the last chapter, in chapter 39, was that Joseph, Joseph gets put into prison, and you know, he, so he's unjustly put into this prison, and, uh, and then, but it says that the Lord is with him in this prison, and he basically becomes the warden of the prison. He's given the keys, he oversees all the prisoners. You say, wow, that's, that's a lot of freedom. You're actually in charge of everything, you know? And, uh, and, and so uh, the Lord's um, uh, blessing him, and now it says that the, the cupbearer, and the baker from Pharaoh are put into the prison. And he is called uh, to take care of them and, and to you know, attend to them. And this is an important thing because uh, basically to attend to them means that he's overseeing them. And one of the things we have to understand is that a cupbearer and a baker in, in an ancient, ancient kingdom were fairly high officials in the king's court. They were very trusted uh, you know, confidants of Pharaoh, right? Because, you know... If there's going to be a conspiracy against the king, what you do is you poison the food. So you have the cupbearer, and he takes a sip of the wine before they pass it to the pharaoh, make sure it's not poisoned. And so oftentimes, uh, he would be uh, an advisor to the pharaoh because he was so trusted. He was his right-hand man, the cupbearer. So these are very high officials. If, if you've uh, read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to, to uh, Darius, king uh, Artaxerxes in, in the Persian kingdom. And he, uh, he could speak to the king. He could make requests of the king. So these are very high officials who have now been put in prison. So these are high-profile prisoners, and Joseph is the one who's overseeing them and taking care of them. So he's given all this responsibility, and God is with him and blessing him. And one of the things that's going to say to Joseph is Joseph's going to look at his life, and he's going to be like, I'm in prison. I have no idea why. It's unjust. And yet it seems like God is doing something here. Right? There's this kindness sprinkled into it to assure him God is giving him relief in the midst of his suffering. And that's what God does to us, is we have, you know, hard things that God brings into our life that we don't know what his purposes are. And yet in the midst of that, maybe in other places of our life, he shows us his kindness to show us that he does remember us even while we're suffering. He gives us moments of relief, moments of his kindness. But what he also gives us... Um, is not just relief, but he also gives us people to love. While we are suffering, God gives us people to love. And now look at this. this You get a little glimpse. You know, I said at the beginning that Joseph is getting ready for this moment where he's going to have to forgive his brothers for selling him into slavery. And you can already see some of the tenderness that God is forming in Joseph here. Look at verse 5. And one night... Uh, the cup, uh, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the, uh, the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw 
that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And what we see here in Joseph is um, that these, um, these two men are in prison and they're having these troubling dreams. Their minds are, are dreams that they're feeling like, wow, something's messed up. Something is happening in my life. And I am uh, in turmoil about it. And they're confused and they're scared. And, and Joseph sees it on their face. And he knows what it's like to be confused and to be scared and uh, to, to be suffering and to be lost. And he can read it on their face. And then he goes and he ministers to them and he interprets a dream for them. And that's one of the things that happens for us. I know for many of you, um, if you've really suffered, you can actually, you can come to this church, you could be across the room from someone, you could see them singing during church, and you can just read it on their face, and you can say, I know something's happening. I know that they're hurting right now. I know they need me to talk to them. Um, it's because, and, and that's what God does, is during our suffering, he gives us an attentiveness to other people's suffering so that we're able to love them. And then when we have those opportunities uh, and we get to speak to them and we, they open up to us and we can understand them, um, what that assures us is that God is remembering me in my suffering. Now one of the things that's important to remember about this passage is that Joseph, wow, he, he sees that they're troubled, he sees that they're downcast, he reaches out to them, he talks to them, um, he ministers to them. But is that the reason that Joseph is suffering? So that he can help other people? No. Well, eventually, yes, he's going to save his family. But is it so he can help these guys? No. And what often happens in Christian circles when we're counseling one another and we say, listen, the reason that God brought a terrible thing into your life while you're suffering is so that you'll be able to help other people. It's true, you will be able to help other people. But we don't know ultimately what God's purposes are. It's just one indicator that God, um, it's an assurance to us that God still remembers us that I'm able to love people. And God's still at work in my life. And so it leads me so that I can trust him because I know that, uh, that he's with me. And so I don't have to say, oh, God gave me all this suffering just so that I, can, I could have had this conversation with this person. No. But the fact that you had that conversation assures you that God is still with you and that he's with you in your suffering. Okay? So um, he, uh, he gives us relief. He sprinkles our suffering with kindness. Um, he also uh, gives us people to love that assures us that God remembers us. Um, but third... He also gives us his word. The way that God shows us that he remembers us even when we're suffering is by giving us his word. And you know, one of the things that's so striking about this passage is that there's so many things that seem to say that God has forgotten Joseph. Right? Um, he's, his brother sold him into slavery. <laughs> he's taken to a foreign country. He's unjustly thrown in prison. This is 10 years. Um, it seems like God has forgotten him. It seems like God must be absent. God is hidden. You know, some of you feel that way. God seems absent. He seems like he's not doing what I think he should be doing in my life. And yet, in verse 8, it says this. And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. And they tell him the dream. He says, the only person who can interpret dreams is God. And they says, tell him to me. And they tell him to him, and he has the interpretation. Which tells us what? God spoke to him. 
he <laughs> seems to be abandoned by God, and yet God is still speaking to him so that he can interpret dreams. I mean, that's an amazing thing, that one of the things that God gives us in our, our suffering is he speaks to us through his word. Now, one of the things, you know, we're not Joseph. We're not all patriarchs of the people of God, you know, the first chosen ones. Um, uh, so God doesn't give us authoritative interpretations of dreams. So if you have a dream, I can't come up to you and say, well, this is authoritatively the word of the Lord, uh, what God says your dream means, like Joseph can. I don't have that kind of status. But what we do have is, well, first we have the Bible, which is the Word of God. But we also have the Holy Spirit. And the God, through the Holy Spirit, somehow has to take, you know, I'm preaching this, this, this passage I'm reading is a 3,500-year-old story. It was written by Moses in the probably 1440s B.C. And, uh, and so uh, here's uh, Moses, and we're reading this, and somehow this needs to be translated into Bellingham 2013. How is that gap going to be bridged? That's what the Holy Spirit does, is takes this ancient word and applies it into each of our lives. And then we know, when this word is applied into our lives by the Holy Spirit, we know God is still speaking to me. And you know, this, just last week, uh, you know, this is a big encouragement to me of, you know, I, I, I gave a sermon that I didn't feel especially prepared for, and, and it was uh, on work. And yet a number of you came up and said, that is exactly what I need to hear. I'm, I'm struggling in my work, and uh, I, just, I needed a word from the Lord about my work. And just thank you. I just wanted to let you know that the Spirit was really using that. And, you know, of course, that's a great encouragement to me. Um, but also, you know, the thing, you think about what happened to these people who were struggling in their work. <laughs> Did they hear the sermon and then they had a new job on Monday? <laughs> no. They weren't, their, their suffering wasn't taken away, but they were able to know that God remembers me even in this hard work situa situation because I've heard from his word. He's spoken to me. And when God has spoken to me, then I know that, I, that he remembers me even in the midst of my suffering. And so that's what God uh, is doing. Um, uh, for Joseph, is that as Ed Welsh says, he can't explain all the causes for his suffering. He doesn't know what the big story is, but he, there are. Um, he knows he is experiencing God's steadfast love to him. That God remembers him in the midst of his suffering, and that helps him to make that decision: Who am I going to trust? Who am I going to worship? But it's one thing to say, okay, God remembers us even of our suffering if, you know, we're being really faithful, right? If I trust God and no matter what comes, I believe in him, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm praying every day, I'm going to church, I'm in community, all these things, then yeah, I expect that God would remember me in the midst of all that. But what we see also in this passage, I think there's an indication that Joseph is actually beginning to lose his faith. And that we also see not only that God remembers us even in our suffering, but God also remembers us even in our faithlessness. Even in our faithlessness. And uh, I, Scott Lindsay actually uh, showed me a really helpful commentary on Genesis, especially on this chapter. This commentary makes uh, the observation that after Joseph, so the cupbearer comes to him and says, interpret my dream. And he interprets the dream and he says, you know what, in three days you're going to be back on top, you know, number two with the, uh, with the Pharaoh serving his cup. And in verse 14, after he gives the interpretation, this is, this is what Joseph says. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. Now, in that little verse, uh, there's two 
Hebrew words that are two of the most important Hebrew words in the whole Old Testament. And the first is that word remember, zakar, which is, uh, you know, only remember me. And then it's used again when he says, mention me to Pharaoh, that's remember me to Pharaoh. Only remember me and then remember me to Pharaoh. Twice he says that. And um, almost everywhere in Genesis, this word for remembering is used about God remembering people who are, in their, who are in trouble, right? So when Noah's on the ark and there's the flood and uh, he's like, what am I going to do? It says that God remembered Noah. And, uh, you know, when Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis 19 are going to be destroyed and Lot's in Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, it says that God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. And when uh, Rachel wasn't having any babies and uh, she's distraught, it said that God remembered Rachel. And so um, that's a big theme in the Bible that God would remember us. And here, though, Joseph is saying to the cupbearer, basically, God's not remembering me. Maybe you'll remember me. He's turning away from God, and he's turning to a man uh, for what God's supposed to give to us. He's, you know, he's been 10 years in prison. He's saying, maybe God has abandoned me. Even though God's, I'm interpreting these dreams, maybe God doesn't have a plan for me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start working with the cupbearer and with the pharaoh. Maybe they have better things for us. And you might think, eh, that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, but I, I think there's another word. There's a second Hebrew word um, uh, that's used in that. It's not only zakar, but also uh, the word hesed, kindness, right? He says, um, please do me the kindness and that word has said is the word that appears all over the Old Testament, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, will you show me steadfast love? Will you be faithful to me? And of course, the cupbearer, does he remember him? No. Does he show steadfast love to him? No. Um, and what he's doing is he's looking, uh, Joseph, is, uh, faith in the Lord is wavering. And uh, with the passing of years, and uh, he's not looking God, to God to remember him, and he's not looking to God for his said. And um, the question is, are God's purposes for Joseph dependent on the strength of Joseph's faith? Are God's purposes dependent on the strength of his faith? Does the plan change because Joseph's faith is wavering? No. It's God's purposes that are unchanging. And, you know, there's a great... Uh, one of the most ancient Christian hymns, uh, which the first Christians, the first generations of Christians sang, um, it's, it's recorded in the book of Second uh, Timothy. It's a great little creed hymn that they would sing in worship services. It's kind of like the doxology. You know, we sing the doxology every week. It's kind of this short little thing that we sing that expresses what we believe in God. And uh, I want to read it to you. And this is what they said, these early Christians. If we have died with him, with Jesus, we, also, uh, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will al he also will deny us. Now listen to this. He says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And then it says, if we are faithless. And whenever I get to that word, I always pause, I hold my breath. What's he going to say? He said, if I deny him, then I'm going to be denied. And now he says, if we're faithless, is it going to say that God's going to be faithless? No. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The great relief that even if I'm faithless, God's faith, God's steadfast love doesn't change. God's purposes for Joseph don't change with his uh, wavering faith. And um, what, you know, that's a great encouragement to many of us.
And I know that many of you have had that experience where you say, I've gone on times where my faith felt totally cold, totally distant. Maybe I, I wasn't even going to church. If you belong to him, even in your faithlessness, faithlessness, he remembers you. And some of you have seen that. You've seen that happen. You say, he should have forsaken me. He should have let me go. My heart was cold towards him. I didn't care what the Bible said I should be doing. And yet he remembered me. He didn't forsake me. And he drew me back to himself. And that's what we see happening here, is that God remembers us, just not in our suffering, but also even in our faithlessness. Okay? But how does God do that? And um, how can... How can his love be so unchanging, so steadfast? And this is the third thing we see in this passage, is um, that God also remembers us even when he forgets himself. He would remember us and forget himself. And, uh, you know, one of the things to notice about this passage is that it says again that, uh, you know, Joseph says that he was innocently put in prison. But in verse 1, you'll see this again, uh, verse 1 again, uh, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And, you know, forgive me, you know, I try not to always talk about Hebrew words. You know, when you read the English Bible, you don't have to think, am I supposed to know Hebrew to understand this? No, I mostly read, I read the English Bible all the time. But one other observation about the Hebrew words here. That word, committed an offense, is the word, sin, is the word sinned. It says that the cupbearer and, uh, cup and the baker really did, Moses said, they sinned against Pharaoh, the king, uh, the king of Egypt. They deserved to be in prison, and Joseph did not. And what we see um, happening here is that Joseph interprets the dream of the cupbearer and announces to him his liberation. He says, you're going to be restored. You're going to be forgiven. And yet Joseph is abandoned and is forgotten, right? Uh, Joseph, uh, see that there in verse uh, 23? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So the guilty one is set free, but the blessing bearer of God, the one who has God's blessing, the, the chosen one of God, is condemned unjustly and left in prison. Um, there's this reversal. And what this story is, what is that story? It's the story of the kingdom. Way early on, you know, this is 2,000 years before Jesus came. God is weaving into the story of his people the key story um, of of how he's going to remember us is that Jesus was the innocent one and that we are the guilty ones. We're the sinners. And he was condemned for us. He was put on the cross. He took all of our crimes, all the punishment for all our crimes, he bore on the cross so that he might announce to us our liberation, that we might be installed in God's house and be co-heirs and reign with him, that we would be God's friends, as Daniel said. We'd be his friends, we'd be his children, and he would be our king. And, uh, and here, uh, this is, the, why can God's love be unchanging steadfast, even when my life is so up and down, my faith is up and down, I'm sinning against God, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm all over the place, how can God's love not change? It's because God's love for me is not based on what I do, it's not based on my faith, it's based on what Christ has done for me, that he has paid for all my sin, that he is my righteousness, and based on that, once for all, he's paid for it all, and so God's steadfast love is never changing, he always remembers me. 
And so uh, it is with this hope that we enter into all of our suffering and we look at the story of our life is we know um, that the innocent one was condemned for us. And so that even when our faith feels fickle and we forget God so easily, if we belong to Jesus, God will never forget us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for this word. Uh, We thank you for uh, the scriptures that are filled with wonders to us and always point us to Jesus. Would we rest in your faithfulness? Would we rest in your steadfast love and your hesed? And uh, I pray for those who come here um, that are wondering, can I rest in God's love? My faith has felt so weak, so wavering, so distant. What is God's stance towards me? I pray for those hearts that you would lead them to Jesus and see that your love is steadfast because once for all, he has paid for our sin and secured your approval and your love, your covenant love to us. Um, We thank you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.